This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open sourced Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at Sentry.io. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Dave Kimura. Hey, everyone. We also have Eric Berry. Howdy, howdy. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And uh, this week, Dave recommended a topic for us uh, since we had our guest uh, reschedule. Um, And that is when to build, since I'm assuming most of you listening are developers um, of some level of experience or another, or when you want to just buy or, you know, pay for a service or something like that. I'm, I'm curious, Dave, just to kick this off. Was there something that prompted this, something that you were thinking about or dealing with? Yeah. So not too long ago, my wife and I got some new cars and, you know, they had 10 miles on the odometer. So congrats to us, you know, first time new car owners. But the problem is, is that I'm kind of a stickler when it comes to keeping track of things. So if I buy a used car, I'm not going to be really good about keeping track of my oil changes. You know, when was the, uh, the history of all of them done? When did I last rotate the tires and all that stuff? Cause it's a used car. The odometer was already at 50,000 miles, but having brand new cars, I'm like, I want to start this off right. So I started looking around for. Uh, just very simple self-hosted trackers or, you know, an application, a SaaS application where I could just track my vehicles, the maintenances that I've done on them, the parts I used. So if I ever do go to sell the car, I could just print out a simple report showing all of the history of that car's maintenance. And I did not find anything. You know, I didn't find anything that really suited my needs because I wanted to be able to upload some receipts to attach it to it. And then, you know, really just kind of have a simplified view without all the complexities of what a lot of the programs out there. So I started to come across these situation. I know how to write a web application. Do I want to spend the time to build it? Or do I want to just keep looking and buy something? Right. So, yeah, I'm, I'm curious. So you decided to build something then? Is that what you settled on? It's not built yet, but it's definitely something I've uh, started on. And, you know, it's going to be in Ruby on Rails. It's going to be uh, Rails 5.2 using active storage and a lot of the new technology. So it's something for me where I can keep up to date with the latest technology, put real world application uses to it with something like the active storage and stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's something where uh, it's beneficial for me to just kind of keep my skills sharp. And the best way to do that is to solve a real world need that I have. Makes sense. So Eric, do you have a take on this? I mean, when, when do you decide to build versus buy? 
Yeah, I, uh, you know, it's such a funny, funny thing. That's That's been a decision that has evolved over time with me. At the beginning, when I was a bit of a younger developer, I I would try to build almost everything that I could. And the reason being is because I thought, no, I got to have, I got to own the, I got to own this. I got to own, I got to have total control of it. And then the further and further and further along I, I, I got, for me, this is just for me, I've typically tried to buy everything that I can. <laughs> because there's only so many hours in the day and, you know, we're all constant builders, right? But I think the yeah. core of that is that even though we're constant builders, either we're building tools that are already built or we're building tools that are not already built. That's really the approach that I take it. Now, the question, I guess I want to point the question back to you, Dave, um, is what's your motivation behind creating it? Are you, uh, are you more interested in the, the process of creation? Are you more interested in making sure that the tool is uniquely fit to your needs or is it something else? I think it's the latter where it really just fits to my needs. You know, I don't need something overly complicated, but I think, and this doesn't so much apply to my example, but I think that we often find situations where there's a justifiable case to build it just as much as there is to buy it. But if you buy something, then you have very little control of the... SDLC, the software development lifecycle, the features that gets put in and what's important to you may not be important to the SaaS company or whatever product company that is having that product. You know, they may see a feature that you're using quite extensively as something that is deprecated in their minds. So you're kind of then left in a pickle where you are going to either have to then build your own or then you're going to have to find some other company that will accommodate your needs. And I think you raise a really important point about building versus buying, and that's the data. So essentially, you're entrusting your data to another company that, one, they're taking the proper security measures to protect your data. Two, that if there's ever a situation where their company gets acquired by one of your competitors and now you've really been married into this product and now your competitor, you're just giving them money. Uh, And depending on the application, it could be quite a bit. So uh, I think the data point is really important where if this is your bread and butter that you're going to be building your business around, then sometimes renting out or licensing a application that you're reselling or whatever the case, may not be the best option. But if it's a utility, something that you're going to use to support your bread and butter application that you do have, then it could make more sense to buy something. Yeah, it's it's funny. I mean, you're talking about, you know, the, the control, the level of control. And I think I was complaining to a friend of mine, this might sound really familiar, Eric, about some of the processes that I had around like sponsorship and podcast management. And we were sitting down at lunch and Eric basically said, dude, you're a developer, <laughs> right? And, and so it was essentially, I mean, I cut a whole lot out of there. We had a long conversation, but you know, that, that's what it came down to is I, I was like, well, I've tried this and I've tried that and I've tried this. And I don't know why it never occurred to me, but yeah, it was, there's nothing out there that does what I need. 
And so I have to buy it. And the, you know, the business of running the podcast is so heavily dependent on this stuff working that, yeah, it was like this light bulb went off. But yeah, I tend to opt toward buying things when I can. And I just realized there was nothing out there that did what I needed. And so, you know, in, in a very real way, I've been working on building my own thing because I need it. And there's nothing out there that yeah. does it. Yeah, absolutely. Like uh, I bought a copy of ScreenFlow for doing my Drift and Ruby podcasting. And even though I develop software, there's no way I'm going to take on the need or that project of building my own screen recording application with the timeline editing and all that stuff because that's focusing all of my attention on something, on a utility that's not going to give me a ROI. Mm -hmm. Whereas paying 100 bucks or now $130 uh, a year for each new version, I can focus on what really matters, the bread and butter, so to speak, and leave that other stuff to people much smarter than me in that domain. Yeah, I agree. And I've had a lot of experience with this, uh, building the original version of Code Sponsor. I do like what you said, though, that if it's, uh, if it's a core part of your business, if you are buying, understand that that is a competitive, possibly a competitive disadvantage. Uh, the reason I say that is because, uh, for example, Code Sponsor, the original one, uh, we were paying on a cost per click basis. And for those listeners who don't know what Code Sponsor is, um, it was an ad platform that would place ads in GitHub Readme's. And then anytime those, those little ads were clicked, the developer behind the Readme would get paid. So it was, it was in a strong effort to, to help sustain open source. But what I found is that uh, we didn't get any extra data from those clicks or impressions. So uh, that's because GitHub would obfuscate the uh, refer and they would obfuscate the source IP and, and basically uh, send everything through a filter so that uh, the data that we would receive, uh, I couldn't I couldn't actually say, oh, this is an individual person from this country, so, so this is the ad that we show. Uh, long story short, I needed a fraud system. There was a lot of fraud going on and I needed to make sure that fraud wasn't happening. So I thought about building a system, um, but I realized quickly that uh, building a fraud system is not an easy thing. Um, and so I, I ended up getting kind of clever because most fraud systems out there that are built for this exact case are anywhere between one to $3,000 a month. Um, I wasn't making any money on it at the time, so it was really important for me to be able to have a solution that was really cheap. So I ended up using a, a service called Improvely, and proxying all of my traffic through Improvely, and they do the fraud checking and then just having it redirect back through my system. And if it made it back, we would actually say it's not fraud. That tended to work really well, but, but it was nice to have a solution that I could pay for up until the point where I could create my own. I think that's kind of the key too. Uh, there, there's the, the build versus buy question, I think also has to do with the, the pragmatism needed to be able to build a business and, and how fast you need to be to market. It would be fairly simple in my view to be able to wrap any type of interface to an external system with some sort of wrapper that you could replace to point internally once you have that part built. But speed to market is something that I would take into consideration in the mm -hmm. build versus buy question. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, if, it may not be exactly what you need and it may not 
give you the level of control you want. But if you can spend a nominal amount of money, <laughs> right, and it'll get you most of the way there, then you can use that until it's your biggest pain point, and then you go and replace it. You know, it, yeah. it, it moves up in priority of it eventually, essentially. And I think that's where if you are not building your bread and butter application, because typically to some degree, those are going to have to be a little bit more feature rich. But if we just look at like utilities that support you in your goal of your main product, I think that's where MVPs can really come into play. And that's a, just a minimal viable product. So for example, with my uh, maintenance tracker for my cars, it doesn't have to have all this fancy searching or anything else. Right now, I just need something where I can get the data in there. And once I can get the data in there, I can then start building notifications like, hey, it's been 5,000 miles since your last oil change. You need to change it again mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So I think a lot of the the fizzazz can come later, but getting the minimum product up there and running is really important. Now, for something like CodeFund, I think that there is just a lot of expected features. So a MVP on CodeFund would probably still be a fairly large application just because there's so much business logic that goes into it. On something like Drift and Ruby, you know, my main goal is to get the videos uploaded to the site, have some somewhere where people can see the show notes, and a lot of the extra things can come later. So, you know, doing any kind of ranking or leveling up of uh, stuff can come at a later date when I have time to actually build that stuff in. But I think that's a problem that a lot of people face when they are talking about a larger application that they see where it is feature rich and it kind of discourages them from building, even though building might be the correct solution because they're trying to build in all of these features in one go without scheduling them out in future sprints or later out in the life cycle of that product. You know, they try to do everything today And I think often that's going to lead to bad code. It's going to lead to things not working properly, you know, unless if you have really good tests in there. But if you're trying to build out something fast, chances are you kind of save time by skipping writing a lot of tests and stuff like that. So I think that you really have to gauge what is your MVP? What do you need to build in order for this thing to initially be functional and then worry about building in all the features or the you know innovative ideas in the application. Yeah. So let me ask you when you when you approach a, a build versus buy and you decide to build how much of how much influence do you allow existing products to to drive your development? I say a crap ton. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know because you know At some point, you're going to be reinventing the wheel, you know, if you are building a competitive product. But I think that uh, getting inspiration from, but not copying, you know, I think blatantly copying stuff is not good, but giving your own interpretation to things, I think is uh, fine. You know, there's only so many ways to, um, you know, build something. And I think, 
that seeing what's out there, what people like and what people want, that's just doing your due diligence. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I have found, though, that mudding, the, it does tend to muddy the creative waters a little bit. And I actually actively try when I'm building something. Now, this is not uh, a, a core a core part of products typically, but it's more like a, a smaller portion of a product uh, perhaps. But I like to approach things in a way where I don't necessarily know exactly what the competitors are doing. Because what that ends up doing is, and I, I did this a lot with CodeFund, uh, what that ends up allowing is you're not constrained by existing product apparent limitations. Okay. And so I've heard time and time again from advertisers saying, wow, your, your product offers so much more than any other ad platform I have used. And it's, it's, the, it's so much easier to use. And, and I think I, I have to give some credit to the fact where I just approached it as a, how would I want to use this as an mm -hmm. individual? and not look at other people's uh, things. Now, I won't say that I haven't, you know, been influenced in certain ways. And I do like to go to, you know, competing products like Google ads or Facebook ads and kind of say, oh, that's how you do your location targeting. And that's how you do this and that and that. But at the end of the day, I typically like to have at least a prototype done prior to getting influence from the outside, as long as it is spec'd out properly or better yet, I understand the business need uh, very, very well. Yeah, I will double down on that. I've been doing the same thing with the podcasting platform that I've got. And there are a couple of other ones out there that I looked at, you know, it's like, okay, does this one work? No, this won't do what I need. And so what I wind up doing is I'll start building on whatever feature I, I've decided that I need. And then I go back out like when it's, okay, how, how, how am I going to put this together? And then I'll start going and looking at how other people have done it. But I already know, like you said, exactly what I need. I know what the outcomes have to be. I know what kind of reporting and information I need to put into it. And so when at the end of the day, um, I'm, I'm just looking for a model for providing what I already know I need to provide instead of taking my feature list from somebody else's. And I think in both of your cases, you both touched on having a very good knowledge of the domain. And I think that's the important bit is if you don't have a good knowledge of the domain, you know, for me, like um, the maintenance tracker, I don't know all the necessary fields that may need to get tracked. So looking at competitive products or services online will give me that insight because that definitely is not my domain. So you guys both have a good knowledge of the podcast, of the advertisement platform, so you kind of know what you need to build. Without that, and without the inspiration of other products, I think you would have to have a business analyst or someone who has that kind of knowledge. Totally. Totally, yeah. totally. And plus, you know, it's just more fun to build, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> very, well, the, the point is that you're building. Now, the question is, is it is it fun to build or is it fun to integrate? You know what I mean? I enjoy integrations more. I enjoy using tools out there that have a full team behind them. They get to deal with their, you know, their SLA. They get to deal with uh, all the bugs that come through. And all I have to do is build integrations to their services. And then the things that you can create 
when it's basically like you can build some amazing stuff if you offload what you don't need to build to other products that are already built. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. One way that I've done this recently is I've been working. uh, So the product I've been working on, I've called uh, PodWrench, which is essentially, you know, it's a tool for podcasting, not very creative, but whatever. Um, And yeah, so I've recently been playing with integrating with Zapier. And it's just because when it comes right down to it, I don't want to have to go build the scheduling engine, right? I want people to be able to use Calendly or Schedule Once or Google Calendar appointment slots or something else, and then just have it come in and say, okay, you've got a recording scheduled, good for you. And yeah, not have to worry about that stuff. And so, yeah, it's it's been kind of an interesting journey, but at the same time, those kinds of integrations have been, it, it's been really helpful to do that because then it's, okay, well, now I'm going to send a test through the system and all I have to do is go play with, you know, that system on the other end and make sure Zapier does the right thing when it when I tell it to. Yeah, absolutely. And there are certain things that I will stay away from entirely and I won't even attempt to uh, develop like a merchant services platform, you know, I need to take in yeah. payments for Dredge Ruby. I'm not touching that. I don't want to have to deal with uh, PCI compliance or any of that stuff. Now, I want to leave that to someone who knows that, who is invested in that area. And I just want to use their services. Now, even if it does mean me having to spend a lot of money in fees or whatever, there are certain things where the benefits outweigh the risk to use a third party. Yep. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Yeah, 100%. 100%. And so another part that comes into play is how lazy do you feel when you're making these decisions, right? For example, um, what if you're building an authentication? What if you have an application, you need to build this authentication that's both mobile friendly? And there's a, I mean, we can bring in device and do all this stuff. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there are tur- turnkey solutions like Auth0 or other stuff like that, that you can just bolt on. And then the question becomes like, what are the benefits of, of bolting on uh, stuff on top? Or for example, a chat, a chat, uh, not chat, but comments. Um, it's really simple to bolt on uh, an existing uh, gem or, or, or Rails, um, Rails engine that will, that will integrate comments directly into your system versus, oh, I want to write this whole thing myself. You know, for the authentication thing, you know, let's take that one first. Um, my main problem with just building in integration to a third-party integration, I've seen some applications where they only allowed Twitter authentication. Well, if Twitter goes down, then right. everyone has zero access to your application. Now you're going to start getting calls or lose the money. So I think in that sense, if you are going to do some kind of integration like that, have multiple options. But if someone has only authenticated with Twitter, not Google or some other service, then they're still going to be locked out of your application. And, you know, that's really bad. So uh, in, in my opinion, so you need to have some other way for them to authenticate in that scenario, which means that you would have to be developing in instead of only solely integrating. As far as the comments go, I think that's really going to come down to your business need. You know, if comments aren't a core part of your project or business, then 
attaching something like discuss or something else may make sense, but you also uh, surrender a lot of control over the data and also the functionality. So if you do have any kind of uh, business need where you're going to have to do something extra with the comments, maybe show for a particular user all the comments that they have made, then using something like discuss would not really be a viable solution. And if you're going to do that initially, but then you plan to roll out your own later, now you're talking about having to worry about getting the data out of Discuss, attaching it to that user account within your system so they don't lose that history. So I think understanding what your immediate need is and what is immediately acceptable, but also plan out for the future of where do we want to be? What's the end product going to be is really important to have as well. Not only is that going to help direct the workflow and how you make decisions, but it's also going to allow for a better database architecture from the get-go. Because if you're pinning yourself into a corner, then having to refactor that or rebuild it to get yourself out of that corner could be very expensive on time or resources. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I think it's sad that that has to be said, but look at how many applications out there that are so limited. And it's because they have painted themselves into corners. Mm -hmm. Either because someone did not think about uh, what they were going to need in the future, what the customer base would need in the future, whatever. But I mean, it happens with so many products out there. And I'm definitely not saying that my products are exempt from that. You know, I think I've made that mistake a handful of times as well. So how do you qualify a good buy? How do you qualify something that would be like, okay, this, this hits my criteria for the buy. What, what would that criteria be? Uh, one, you know, if it is a SaaS model, is it something that I can long-term afford? No, is it something that is really providing a value that would be every single month? So not just this month, but next month and the following month, something where I'm where I can honestly say to myself, I'm glad I'm paying for that. You know, for example, like uh, mail hosting. You know, I've set up mail hosts uh, on my on a digital ocean box before, and I've managed that, but there's so much hassle that goes into it. And it's something where I'm still paying for a service to host the uh, server, but then I have to maintain it. Then if something goes wrong, now yeah. my business is hurting because I'm not getting the emails that I need to get from the pe people that I promise if you send me an email, I will receive it. So I think that's a risk that we have to consider as well is what is their SLA? Is it good? You know, is it going to be better than what I could offer where I know that this is not an intricate part of my business or the service that I'm providing? You know, is it going to be up and running? Or now am I going to have to pay for someone to come in and support these services that I chose to build myself that I no longer had time to support? 100%. To me, I think that the speed to integration, the speed to usage plays a pretty high role in my decision to build or buy. It's all about the pain, right? How much pain would be involved in, 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 in buying and utilizing and integrating the solution versus how much pain is involved 
in uh, building one. And and it always comes back for me. It always comes back to the, the idea that if you want to get the job done right, hire the laziest person possible and you will have the most <laughs> efficient solution there is. And I pride myself in being an extra lazy developer <laughs> because I'm always trying to find out how can I how can I get the best work done in the most in the least amount of time? And perhaps that's just kind of how I was groomed as a developer, working with my brother and all that stuff over the years. But it's been I've leaned towards the pragmatic side over the over the craftsmanship side, and and perhaps that's part of it. You know, perhaps perhaps the type of developer that we are really determines the answer to that question. For example, I'm. I'm a shipper over a craftsman. I like to mm-hmm. I like to get code out the door more than I like to create the code. What about you guys? Yeah, I have that same bent. You know, but I, I like building it. I really like building it, but I really, really, really like shipping it. And I love hearing from people saying, hey, it's working. Yeah. <laughs> I think I like creating it. You know, I think the shipping part is more the finish accomplishment or the finishing of the race. But I like the or enjoy the actual getting from nothing to something. Mm -hmm. And the shipping it is like the celebration. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's really interesting, though, because you're also leaning more towards building. Deploy more, pay less with DigitalOcean the simplest all-in-one cloud computing platform for developers. Scale and run cloud applications faster and more efficiently with effortless administration tools to robust compute, flexible configurations, networking services, real-time alerts, and rapid provisioning while enjoying industry-leading price-to-performance with a flat pricing structure across all global data center regions at any usage volume. Spend more time building better web apps and less time worrying about managing infrastructure with DigitalOcean. Build your next app on DigitalOcean. Get started with a free $100 credit at do.co slash rubyrogues. And that's not to say that I don't buy anything because I do buy a lot of software. Uh, you know, speaking strictly on software. And I think that the amount of software I buy outweighs the amount of software I build because I'm very limited on time. And... But I think that the core parts of the things are the things that really matter to me where I do need control over the data. So uh, several years ago, my wife and I, we were financially struggling to a point where I wanted to buy a new USB thumb drive. And we would just have this big, long, drawn-out argument of whether or not we could even afford it. Because we had zero confidence in our finances. And the finances is uh, a very intimate knowledge piece that we have that we don't want shared publicly. So it was something where we didn't trust a third-party company. I know there's Mint and other services out there or you need a budget.com or whatever it is that can do these kind of things. But for us, it wasn't something that we wanted to put all of our expenditures and stuff out there or budgeting stuff out there because it was something that we would feel violated if that information was ever stolen. So I opted to build our own budgeting utility. That's a web application that I just self-host in my basement. And it's something that we've been using for the past four or five years now. And I've upgraded it along the ways I've 
rewritten it one time, imported in all the data, but it was something where I wanted to have that uh, complete and absolute control over. And it was something that I saw that it was a wise investment of my time instead of buying because it certainly outweighed the cost of buying because of the insecurities I had with having that data leaked or stolen. Yeah. Yep. And so now I have way too many thumb drives because it turns out we could afford them. (laughs) (laughs) Man, I remember buying a thumb drive maybe uh, 12 years ago and it was a 64 meg thumb drive. And I paid like 50 or 60 bucks for it. And I thought it was back then. Back then. Yeah. Yeah, It really was about a dollar per meg, which is insane today. Yeah. Hmm. So one thing that I'm running into with, you know, what we're talking about build versus buy. And I I think we've covered that pretty well. But as I build this, one thing that I'm finding is that I have a feature list that's way longer than my uh, free time. (laughs) So... You know, for example, I, I have two ends of this um, the thing that I'm building. And one is is the like the content management and scheduling and stuff like that. And the other end of it is the sponsorship. And they serve different um, markets that, that I am pointed at. And so it's been a little bit tricky for me to figure out which one to prioritize, which features to prioritize. So when you're building features, how do you decide which ones to prioritize? And I know this is a problem that we run into with all software projects. But uh, it, it feels a little bit different since I'm relying on this to run everything else. Yeah, and I, I would say personally, it would be would be least impactful to your client base. And so you have really two kinds of clients. You have your sponsors, and then you had the people signing up for the show. The people signing up for the show may be recurring guests that come on, you know, every now and then. But your sponsors are going to be your more regular guests that are coming on all the time. So getting a featured-rich platform for them that will give them the experience and enjoyment of using that product, whether it's a byte solution or built, I think would be the most important bit. And then you know, uh, having something for your scheduling, which doesn't have to be feature-rich from day one, but it's something where, you know, over time you could build in and add the features as the demand requires. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because, yeah, I understand, yeah, some of the trade-offs there as far as, hey, you know, this is going to impact more people. But the flip side is, is that um, the, the more features I add in for the sponsors, that has an impact on the business because that's essentially where the income comes from. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, anything I can do to make that system, you know, basically automatic and provide, you know, what sponsors expect or more than what the sponsors expect, you know, I think, I think that also impacts things some. And then what's really interesting about some of it is that, for example, um, I've gotten feedback from, uh, um, because I've, I've talked to a few people and I've gotten some feedback that they would prefer that I do live ad reads. So right now we do. Uh, pre-recorded ads, and then you know we just insert them in editing. And so I've I've talked to a few folks, and I'm going to start doing the live reads during the show, so you all get to hear nice. them too, uh, starting in October. But um, what that does is that then bleeds the con- the sponsorship stuff over into the content production stuff beyond just 
um, telling Eric, my editor, which ads to put in which spot, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So it, yeah, it becomes somewhat, you know, okay, so I, I have this foundation that I want to build on the content end that I kind of need before I can really, you know, otherwise I have to track it in a spreadsheet or something while I'm building it out. So anyway, it's, it's been kind of an interesting back and forth in my head. But yeah, it, it really is a measure of impact one way or the other, I think. I like that you're thinking that way, Chuck. I really like that you're thinking that way. Which way? Uh, thinking the, the, the read. So the point is, I'm just going to share my opinion on this a little bit with uh, with our sponsorships. Now, uh, sponsors are such a huge part of of my daily life. Advertisers mm-hmm. are a huge part of my daily life with Code Fund, and um, and it's it's great to to go out and find exactly what are their needs, what, what would help them better, because they're you know they're interested in uh, in in the conversions, they're interested in the brand awareness, all that stuff. So, uh, I'm just excited that we're. We're leaning that way, and because some of our advertisers, like I want to talk about, it. I actually mm-hmm. really enjoy a lot of our advertisers, and and I want to yeah. give them the extra kudos that they deserve. Yeah. The other thing that's interesting too is, you know, you've you've mentioned, hey, you know, they they want, you know, sort of the testimonial, and yeah, allowing the other guests to chime in and say, hey, I use them too. The other end of that that's interesting to me, at least, is that when we started out, we got sponsors because we were novel, right? We were a different take on Ruby podcasts. And and this applies to SaaS apps and to, you know, what we're talking about here too, because markets change and, and things change. And so, you know, and then it was, okay, well, this is, you know, Ruby Rogues for a long time was one of the more effective ways to reach Ruby developers on a regular basis. I mean, you could go sponsor conferences, but you know, you, you'd encounter the same developer maybe twice in a year. And so then, you know, you get on Ruby rogues and they hear you every week. And, you know, some, some of our uh, sponsors, especially early on, like new relic, you know, eventually they kind of saturated, right. They, they had reached their, their, uh, their payout or, you know, their ROI started to dwindle because, enough people had heard of them and had either decided to use them or not to use them. And then, you know, we, we get other sponsors that would come and go, but yeah, the, the podcast market has changed. And so, yeah, it, uh, you know, some of this feedback has forced me to rethink the way that I do it. And it's not just because, Hey, this is more effective for the sponsors, but also the markets changed to the point where the ad insertion that we did before was effective then. And it's just not as effective now because podcasting has grown so much. And so we, they, people want to hear the personal touch. They want to hear the personal message. They want to ha- hear how, um, you know, Sentry sponsors this uh, podcast, for example. They want to hear how Sentry.io um, is being used to run PodWrench and FeedWrench. And, you know, so I can talk about the bugs that they've caught for me and what I did to fix them and how the information was useful or DigitalOcean that also sponsors the show. And so, you know, just just being aware of, the needs and how the needs change. And that's also been tricky for me because it's easy to get comfortable. And we see this a lot with people's coding practices and technology choices. And then it turns out, you know what? jQuery just doesn't always cut the mustard anymore, right? Uh, So you may want to look at a React or a Vue or an Angular. And sometimes it does, you know, or something like Stimulus, which is fairly simple and, uh, you know, kind of gives you power features where you want them. And so you have to make that call. And you have to start looking at those things. But if you get comfortable, then you're going to miss it. 
And when you miss it, you pay for it. Yeah, there's so much truth to that. I've experienced that with um, with CodeFund, where you, f- you feel like everything's going great and you realize, oh, actually, we're losing advertisers and, and you don't realize it until they're gone, uh, until they decide not to uh, re-sign up. And then and then you you completely shift your mind over to the advertiser and find out that, wow, while I was dealing with the advertisers, now I'm starting to lose publishers because uh, mm-hmm. because I'm not paying enough attention to them. And and uh, I, it's it's like I actually wrote a blog post yesterday about this and put it out. Um, and, and the blog post is titled um, "What's Keeping Me Up at Night." Um, and it really comes down to to managing the expectations and the happiness of these two very different, almost conflicting groups of people. Um, where, you know, the happiness of one often comes at a cost of the happiness of the other. So keeping that uh, in the front of mind and making it's it's a complicated thing to do. Absolutely a complicated thing to do. Yeah, well, and it's it's interesting too. And in the sense that, I mean, even I want to go back to Dave's example for a minute, you know, with the budgeting thing, it's just him and his wife using it. But at the same time, even their needs have changed, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so he's rewritten that a few times. And um, yeah, that, that feedback is crucial. And so you, you, it's not just about, you know, keeping tabs on this stuff, but getting the feedback. You know, when you lose a publisher, why are you using the, losing the publisher? Are you getting the feedback you need? And, uh, yeah. you know, not all of my feedback has come from the sponsors that are frustrated with the way I did or didn't do things. Sometimes it comes from other people who have talked to them. You know, I've gotten some from Eric. I've gotten some from a couple of other people who are like, you know, so-and-so at such and such a company's kind of frustrated with DevChat. Oh, really? Well, what's the deal? Oh, okay. Well, let me change the packaging and the sponsorship so that it ser- serves their needs. And yeah, it's, it's really interesting just to dive into that and, you know, kind of roll with the punches and be able to get that feedback. Because if you're not talking to your customers, or you're not getting the feedback from your customers, the people who are using it, they will find something else. Maybe they'll go build instead of buy. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think that's um, kind of brings up a side topic of how do you receive feedback? You know, because some people, you know, there's, you know, a small minority out there that will just bash you. You know, mm-hmm. their intention is not to give you constructive feedback. They're they're just wanting to be really just a mean person. You know, they had something else going on in their life. But if you react the same way to that person as you do to someone who is giving you honest feedback, then you're really hurting yourself. You know, so I think that having the appropriate attitude, having a good attitude to receive feedback is extremely important because ultimately it's going to make your product better. Yep. That can be a hard thing to do sometimes. It, it really Absolutely. Can. Because yeah, I mean, people don't want to have that uh, confrontation, right? You didn't do what, or you didn't, you know, fill my need in this way or whatever, right? They, they, it, it's uncomfortable to say, you know, I didn't get what I wanted, especially when you know somebody's invested a bunch of effort into what you're using. Yeah. You know the funny the funny thing that I I've I've come to really appreciate humanity and uh over the past year I've found that when 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 people when you're asking them like hey what happened or why'd you leave or whatever or questions 
And so I, I know that they're reading the emails because I have an email thing that tells me like when they read the email and sometimes I could see they read it four or five times, but they don't reply. And the funny thing, it's so funny. It's just a human behavior is I'd, instead of putting myself in any point of conflict, I would rather ignore this until it goes away. And it's so human to do. It's, it's so true. And I, I, I'm sure I've done it myself, but now I've become very aware, like, is, am I doing this? I got to make sure I'm not doing this, but oh my gosh, I, I go through this and mm-hmm. I, I'm, I just look at it. I'm like, look, I know you read this four times, but you're not replying. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and I want to just send them an email that says, please make me mad, right? Please piss me off. <laughs> Tell me the things that I don't want to hear because yeah. I, I need to hear them. Right. Yeah. But, you know, that's one of the realities of building software is that hopefully it'll get used. And because it's being used, someone will have an opinion about it. And whether or not they share that opinion, you know, is, I guess, really the question. So having someone share an opinion with me, you know, I've been told that one time that a computer automated voice would be more pleasant to listen to than my own voice. And, you know, I'm like, okay, well, that wasn't very nice, but let me try to take some positive out of there where maybe I need to add some more emotion into my voice to, you know, kind of differentiate between topics that I'm talking about. So even like the negative bad stuff, if you are fortunate enough to get those kind of feedbacks, whether or not they really meant it nicely or harshly, they felt that at one point when they were writing that feedback to you. So I take all feedback extremely serious and I try to interpret it in a way that how can this feedback make me a better podcaster or screencaster, Mm -hmm. a better person, or just overall better in general. And you will be able to find some in even the most nastiest, or maybe not the nastiest, there's exceptions, of course, but even the nastiest kind of uh, feedback that you may receive, if you're fortunate enough to receive feedback. But being a developer, especially if you're working with the team, prepare for feedback because they will give it to you. Yeah. But on the flip side, if you choose to buy, since that's kind of our topic, then you get to be the one giving feedback. And if you do give feedback to someone, make it constructive. You know, really just tell them honestly what you're thinking. Just don't say, oh, I love your product. No, I will not ever buy it again. Because that doesn't help them. You know, tell them why you're not going to buy it again or why you unsubscribed or whatever the case. I had an experience recently like that where I was using this this product and uh, it, it, I loved it. it. It's called GeekBot. And what they do is they do... Um, daily standups on Slack. And I did did a bunch of research and GeekPot seemed to be the best choice of all of them. Uh, The one thing that I found with them is that they kept on skipping days and it it would go maybe two weeks before GeekBot would trigger the, hey, what's happening today? And I got very frustrated. I went back and forth with their tech support multiple times and and, uh, eventually I just said, you know what, guys, I can't use you anymore. And here's why. And I listed out, these are the things that I need it to work. Um, and then they, they, they quickly said, well, can you, you know, if you stay, we'll give you three months free and all that stuff. And I said, I can't because it's not working. Well, 
Um, I promptly uh, installed some other solutions, found out that nothing was even close to it. I wrote back. I said, hey, what's the status? They said, we think we fixed it. Are you willing to give another shot? I said, absolutely. Hop back on. I've been happy ever since. So um, it, it, it it's interesting because I think the, the kind of feedback that they get based on that user feedback is so important. Uh, and it, it, was, it was fun. And I, I suppose sharing this doesn't really correlate that much with what we're talking about. But it was cool because he said, yeah, we, we've been getting this feedback feedback from several people. And and it's that validation, right? When you get feedback on a product from, from a customer, you're like, it's a user error. But you start getting it back from more than one more than one person. You get three people telling you, oh, hey, mm-hmm. this is not working right. Then you start taking it seriously. I've, I've had that experience on both ends. Yeah. And, you know, when you're talking about building your own software and you get that feedback, I think that it's important to not be a people pleaser because if that feature request is not going to be globally beneficial for the entire user base or potential entire user base, then it may not be something that you want to build in if it's not a way that can be globally beneficial. Uh, But I think that that does cross the line of do the right thing. So if you're reporting a bug, you know, uh, on-premise software, I understand that it's sometimes harder to do a hotfix or release. But with today's technology, you know, whenever I have an update to Mac OS or Slack or whatever, it just says, hey, a new version is available. Do you want to download it? So I think that being able to take in the user feedback and really listen to it, don't build in the feature just to make that person happy. but to do the right thing where your user base are telling you that we need this feature and they are going to go somewhere else if you don't give them the feature. You know, that's essentially what it boils down to. So that's something else that you have to assume when you are building a product versus buying one. Whereas if you buy one, then you can say, well, I'll report it up to the developers to see if they'll build it in. But at the same time, you've already married yourself to that product because you're reselling it to your end users or whatever the situation is. So switching that program, you may not have as much of an option versus if you build it, then you are taking on that extra commitment. Yep. Anything else we want to jump on with this topic? I mean, I'm sure there are tons of things we can go to, but do you have any tricks for soliciting the kind of feedback that you that we're talking about here? Uh, to have a unsubscribe button make them first fill out a big lengthy form before they're able to unsubscribe (laughs) let me just just piss you you off right before you leave (laughs) one last kick to the groin yeah I I am kind of tempted to just send a periodic email that says please piss me off you know in the subject line and then it's basically hey look tell me anything that's not working for you or anything that we could add or change that will make this more effective for you. What I what I do with CodeFund, at least with our advertisers, actually with both, I send them um, I send them stats uh, like weekly. I send them a snapshot of their stats. I said, that's, "Hey, how are we doing? What can we approve on?" That's something that I want to value. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, so you send them the stats, and then 
Do you solicit feedback on that email? Oh, yeah, yeah. I say, hey, uh, how are we doing? How are we doing on your end? What can we do better? That kind of stuff. Yeah. I think the point is, and I think most, most people who buy software want to know that they at least are heard and are a valued mm-hmm. customer. And so you approach that from both ends. If you are the one selling the software, make sure that they know that they are valued and that their, their voice does matter and that you are constantly working to uh, solve their problems in a more efficient, better, least, less expensive way. Yeah, I like that idea. And I like the idea too of just making it super easy for them, right? So if there is something that you think they could try or that they think they could try, you make it super easy for them to try it, right? So, hey, you know, if you're not getting, uh, you know, so they email back and they say, hey, we're just not getting the, the ROI that we wanted. You know, we're not getting the throughput on the clicks or whatever. Yeah, okay, well, you know, let's let's try changing the image or let's try changing the offer or... You know, and so you, you know, making it easy for them to work through the process and, you know, experiment with it. I think you, you can uh, make people willing to stick around longer term because they know that eventually, you know, you're, you're dedicated to giving them the value, not dedicated to making the bucks. Yeah. And I guess one more final point on building software versus buying, or even if you're buying, you know, a chance to give that developer feedback is someone has to leave your application to continue to do their task at hand, then your application is missing some, or the third-party application is missing some core features that your users are wanting. So I think that's something important too. So if someone on your PodWrench or CodeFund if they have to go somewhere else or if they have to export the data to manipulate it, to be able to see the information that they really need, then those platforms are missing a interface or feature that they need to have in order to show that information. Because once someone leaves your application, they're going to start focusing on something else. Something else will come up. And then they're no longer focused on your application and doing what they had originally intended to do. Yep. All right. Well, we've got another show to do in about 15 minutes. So I'm going to push this into picks. All right. Is your job search stuck? Maybe you're not getting any interviews with employers. Or maybe you are, but no job offers. Or you may be new and not even know where to start. This is Charles Maxwood, and I'm releasing a new course and ebook on how to find a job as a software developer. The course walks you through the process of finding the types of companies you want to work for, getting their attention, and putting your best foot forward as the candidate they want. I've coached dozens of developers in looking for jobs and have been able to help several people find jobs within two weeks to two months. So whether you're new to development, can't find a great job that fits what you want, or are looking for remote work from an area without a strong tech community, I can help. Go to getacoderjob.com and sign up today. Uh, Dave, do you want to start us off with picks? Yeah. So in the spirit of building versus buying, a long time ago, maybe about six years ago, I built my first CNC machine and I built it uh, using, I built a Ruby interpreter and I built uh, the electronics and motors and everything on it. So a CNC machine is basically a woodshop tool that I use that I can feed in a AutoCAD drawing and it'll mill out that part. And so when I moved to Georgia, I rebuilt a new version, a bigger, much more sturdy version. And I used that to uh, mill out my wood parts. And so recently, uh, 
my wife got me for my birthday a Shapoko, which is a pretty common industry you know, standard hobbyist CNC machine that's much more rigid. It's built out of aluminum instead of oak wood that I had built mine with. And it's able to be a lot more precise. So I think, um, you know, that's my pick for today, the Shopoko CNC machine. But going that journey from building it to eventually buying it was a lot of fun. I'm jealous. I still want a CNC machine. <laughs> you can have my old one if you want. It weighs about 400 pounds of wood. And <laughs> oh, so so the shipping will be like five bucks. <laughs> I'll just drive to Georgia. What the hey? All right, Eric, what are your picks? I think I got a few picks this time. Um, so one of the picks, I, I'm thinking about the... Um, the software that buy versus build and, and kind of thinking about what software I've really come to appreciate. Um, I want to share a couple of them. One of them, as I said, is GeekBot. Um, GeekBot is a, a pretty amazing tool. If you have a small to mid-sized, even large team, uh, there's a bunch of variations out there. Their flavor of doing a Slack-based stand-up is my favorite because it's more async than the rest. Um, the other one I, the other share I would like to do is, um, is my email client called Polymail. Uh, now, Polymail is a tool that allows you to do a lot of stuff that other email providers do not offer. And it's, it's very inexpensive. I pay for it. I think they have a free version, but I pay for it. And what I have in here is email open tracking. It allows me to get information on individuals. So for example, if I get a, a, an email from somebody I've never met, it actually can go out and find out information on them. It can show me the link to their, uh, their company, the link to their uh, LinkedIn. Uh, I can view the complete conversation list based on people or based on um, a thread or whatever I want. Uh, some other really cool stuff that it provides uh, that I use quite often are uh, templates. So I can go into my settings and I can set up message templates and basically I, I, I set up variables within these templates. And so, you know, with my business, what I have is a bunch of accept and reject letters based on people who asked to be part of code fund. And I could just choose which one fits the right thing, possibly tweak a little bit. It fills out the variables for me. Uh, the other thing that it provides is a built-in drip campaign. So it has built-in drip campaigns. It has a calendar where you could, you could uh, schedule your appointments through the calendar if you're not using Calendly. Um, it is pretty decked out. I really like it. So I'm going to go ahead and uh, do that as a pick. And then finally, recently or last week, I went to San Francisco, San Francisco uh, for a conference. I had to present at a conference. And while I was there, one of our brand new advertisers, uh, Airbrake, uh, their their home office is right next to where I was. So I stopped by. Now, Airbrake to me, I, I haven't used Airbrake as much uh, recently as I have in the past. I, I used to use Hoptoad. I've tried mm -hmm. to get Exceptional, which Airbrake acquired. Um, but anyway, I, I've they're kind of that, nostalgic uh the, the the nostalgic company like when i walked in i met two of their amazing developers and they uh they welcomed me like family there and it was like old friends getting together it was absolutely a uh, phenomenal experience so uh 
there, I'm going to pick Airbrake as my as my final one. Airbrake.io. Awesome. I'm going to jump in here with a couple of picks. Um, one of the things that I'm going to shout out about is I've changed the way that I'm doing the My Ruby story and my JavaScript story and my Angular story also. But um, I've opened it up to podcast listeners. I, I was keeping it um, primarily, you know, just to podcast guests from Ruby Rogues, and I thought, you know what, I'm not getting a whole story, right? The whole community story. There are people here that I am missing, um, especially newer people that don't feel like they have something to share on a podcast. I'm just like, you know what, their their journey is is really interesting and different from the journey that people have been doing this for five or ten years. What their journey has been. And so um, I opened that up and yeah, it's been really fun to just talk to people and get to know, you know, different stories. So yesterday I talked to a Portuguese guy living in Sweden, <laughs> right? For uh, my JavaScript story. Um, I talked to somebody from, um, anyway, just, just different parts of the world. And it's, it's really interesting just to see where people are at. I talked to a couple of really, really new people, a brand new, um, bootcamp grad just talked about you know what he went through and what he's doing now and anyway so if you want to be on my ruby story um i'll put a link in the show notes for that and uh, you can uh, definitely you know come on and tell us your story um a couple of other picks that i have this episode will come out basically in two weeks uh from when we record this um and so i will be in orlando um, I think the week after this comes out. So um, if you're in Orlando or if you're going to be there for Microsoft Ignite or I guess FinCon is at the same time, let me know because I'd love to get together and you know just kind of do a quick meetup. So um, if you go to devchat.tv and look uh, under events, um, I'm, I'm going to put a meetup in there. I'm going to find a place to meet up and, and we'll we'll grab some food. And that's always fun. Um, and then the week after that, I'm going to be at the Framework Summit in Park City, Utah. So that's the first week in October. So if you're interested in JavaScript frameworks and you want to meet up with core team members, they have core team members coming from uh, the three major ones, which are React, Angular, and Vue. And then they also have folks coming from like Elm and Ember. You know, Tom Dale is going to be there, a bunch of other people. So if you're interested in JavaScript frameworks and you want to go rub shoulders, and just kind of see what uh, the, the meeting of the minds is and what's coming out of them sort of comparing notes, which they're going to be doing on October 1st before the conference. Um, definitely show up. And like I said, I'll be up there. That one's not too far from where I live. So, um, you know, but, but yeah, I'll definitely be there. So if you want to come out to that, that'd be awesome as well. And Park City is gorgeous, especially in October. So yeah, those are my picks. And yeah, I don't think there's anything else. So we'll go ahead and wrap this up. And we will catch everyone next week. All right. Talk to you later. See ya. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more. 